And inside of it, there was a big ministry for the Micronesian um, people that would go, that lived on the outer islands of Guam. And as they would uh, come to Guam, they would come to this college and they would learn. And they would also learn, um, not only would they learn the Bible and theology, but they would also, uh, they taught ESL classes and they would um, learn English into a, to a higher level of English. And um, one of my favorite moments was during our chapel time. And as we would all gather together, there would be moments when people would pray. And these different islands all had different languages and different, even if it was a, it would be similar in some ways, but in many ways it was very different. And when you would hear different languages all praying at the same time, different people expressing what their heart language is, I think there's something very powerful to that. And this, this uh, reminded me of it. So thank you, Ashley, for, um, for doing that for us. So would you open up your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Ephesians chapter 4, where we are going to be looking at verses 17 through 24. Now, while you're turning there, what I want to do is I want to give you guys just a brief little note here, brief little disclaimer, that... We're starting with a, with a passage that begins with therefore. And we talked about, Andrew talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, but anytime that you approach a word therefore and you're reading a passage of scripture, whenever you get there, you should pause and consider that you're starting at the, you're, you're beginning at the end and at the resolution of a previous thought. Right? So something has already happened before this. And do you know what it is? It's a good question to ask. Do you know? So, it's a good thing to ask. It, do, I know what's hap- do I know what this story is about? Do I know what this is about, what came before it? What is the framework to which the author is going to be telling me? Am I aware of that? So, what I wanted to do today, in order for us to understand all together what Paul is saying, I think we need to look back and we need to remind ourselves of what he said. He's writing to the church in Ephesus, and they're classified as Gentiles. Gentiles are basically people who are not Jewish, right? They're not the Israelites. They are not, they weren't considered to be God's chosen people. But this was a major moment in history because this is the moment when when God was making the church. This was the time after Christ's death on the cross, after the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and all of the apostles went out into the nations and started proclaiming God's word and the gospel, now, all of a sudden, these communities that were once separated from God and separated, not allowed to be called his people, are now God's people. They are now co-heirs. And this is a wonderful moment when the early church And that Gentile community was given a new identity in Christ. Through the redemptive work on on the cross, the Gentile community was now seen as heirs with Israel, as seen as citizens and saints with Jesus, in Jesus. So chapter 2, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, Right? We need to emphasize that, our peace. It was no longer their peace, it's our peace. Who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Through Christ's redemptive work on the cross, the Holy Spirit, he was now working in the lives of all tribes, all tongues, all nations, 
to create this new identity, this new people group, this new humanity, if you will, and this new people was called the church. It was a wonderful moment in history. Chapter 3, he helps explain this by saying, the Gentiles are co-heirers, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. There are no longer two people groups with cultural divisions, but there's one body of believers putting their faith in Jesus, being filled by the Holy Spirit to live out this new identity as the church. The church was now the people who looked like Christ. That's a crazy thing for us to wrap our minds around. And that's something that's continually proclaimed is the church is the body of Christ. So then he goes on to chapter 4, and Paul, te- and Paul tells us that, that Jesus has brought us together as one body. This one body, and he uses, he talks about this one, this one body, one spirit, called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, finally one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. And this unity of people as one collective body of believers, is God's gift of grace. I think if we could sum up one word that's driving the letter of Ephesians, I think it would be grace. I think the theme of grace is saturated in this book, a new people called to be the body of Christ in their community as an outward expression of God's grace, right? God's grace in the church really is, I think, as our series says, God's grace made visible. And more than that, this is what I love about it, is that everybody has a part to play, right? It doesn't matter who you are. As if you are in the body, you have a part to play in this. The most liberating of truths is now that God has called his people. They can put away all of their divisions and they can grow together in Jesus by speaking to one another in love. Each believer is called to be unified in the faith and to grow in the knowledge of Jesus. And what I love about it is he describes it like a body with different parts, right? The church is collectively one body growing in love to build itself up by the people who are growing in their love and their knowledge of Jesus. It's this very beautiful, holistic picture of what the church is. The body is growing together as individuals grow. So today our passage in chapter 4 is the continued thought, the continued application of the church growing together in maturity as one body in Christ. We are walking together, renewed in the spirit of our minds in the gospel. Our discipleship, is a, what it tells us, is a community project. It's not something that we can be off by ourselves at. No, the body needs to be together grows together as the individuals grow themselves. But we need more help to understand what, what Paul is explaining. And so Paul is going to explain to know God is, is to know what God is doing right now in your life as a new creation, as a new person, you've got to look back and you've got to see what God has done and see with greater clarity the depth of sin and the separation that you were in. He wants to show us that to live in Christ as the church is to live a new life, a life that is the reflection of the gospel. 
So he starts by painting this picture of life that I call living in the, of living in the dark. And this is verses 17 through 19. And let me read it to you. He says, therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord. You should no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their thoughts. For they are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. So he's showing us that this, this new life, this new life as a new identity, this new self, that there is, there, there can't be both, right? There can't be a going back into the old self while you still try to live the new self. Recently, uh, this, well, actually this past October, I read The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I don't know if anybody's read that book. Everything within me wants to say, it's a strange book. Get it? Yeah, but that would be too bad, so I won't say that. <laughs> um, anyway, so it's about, this, it's about this doctor who has this theory that one person is, is not one, but two. There's two people inside of a person. There's a good side and there's a bad side. And these two people are constantly at odds with one another. They're always boggling the person down. They're always giving them a hard time. And so you have the good person who wants to do good and noble acts, but he keeps on thinking about these sinful thoughts, and he keeps on thinking about uh, these different desires, and he, it's a pain to put off those things. And then you also have the evil self. You have the bad, the bad self who, who wants to indulge in these sinful acts, these different desires, these different indulgences, right? But he's got this conscience that's playing with him. So I think, well, so to Dr. Jekyll, what the, the best thing to do is since he's a scientist, he's going to divide the two. He's going to let them both operate and act on their own without the need of the other, right? They're going to indulge in, in good things. They're going to do noble acts, but then they're also going to, uh, you know, go crazy and go wild, right? So as he sees here, what he wants to do is he, he takes the sermon, then he becomes Mr. Hyde. And what I want to do is I want to read you a little bit of that, that first moment that he becomes Mr. Hyde. The first time he not only sees the temptation of what it could be like to just live a free and careless life without worrying about any type of conscience, but he could fully go step into the sin, step into the darkness and let's see what he says. He says, I knew myself at the first breath of this new life to be more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold a slave to my original evil, and the thought in that moment braced and delighted me like wine. I stretched out my hands, exulting in the freshness of these sensations, and in the act, I was suddenly aware that I had changed. This is a fictional example of what we see in this passage and that to willingly give yourself over to sin's lure and fake facade, it takes hold of you. It captivates you. But the worst part of it is that it doesn't let you go. 
And what we see in the story of Mr. Hyde is that the sin, the darkness, was not content in having this separate person. The story that unfolds is that Dr. Jekyll, he can't control it. And what happens is Mr. Hyde takes over the entire person, right? Takes over that whole person. And he, in, in the end, he ends up being Mr. Hyde. What this picture paints is that sin is like this dark cloud that you walk into. And as soon as you enter into it, the discernment starts to, starts to get hazy. You're unable to really see clearly. And what verse 17 says, it's a futile life. It is living in the dark, right? This is in that cloud, in that darkness, is a life suppressed from the truth. It captivates our minds, and you lose the discernment to see clearly. The lights, they all go out, and you will not be able to control it anymore. Guys, the, the danger of playing give and take with sin is that when you play the game long enough, sin will take you, and it leaves you empty, it leaves you lost, and it leaves you in the dark. And this is a warning. This is a, a fair warning to say, you guys, the, the body of Christ, it needs to have a crystal clear understanding of the depth of deception and encompassing darkness that life apart from Jesus is like, right? Living in the light, living in the gospel always comes as a contrast. It's not just this casual way of living. It's not something we can just tack on to our lives, right? It's not this additional human philosophy. It's not an appendix of a book. The gospel is not something that you can just add on. No, this, the gospel, this new life that is created in you is altogether 100% from God. The, God. the light of the gospel illuminates the whole person, not just a part of it. It's supernatural. It's miraculous. It's love itself. And that is why the key verse here that we need to gravitate to is verse 20. But that is not how you came to know Christ. In this dramatic pause, as he's describing this big picture, he says, but that is not how you came to know Christ. Some other, some other translations might say, that is not how you learned Christ. You were living life in the dark. You were lost you couldn't see anything around you. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you saw the light. The light of Jesus penetrated into your life and broke the chains of sin and darkness. You were set free from the bondage of sin and death. You were dead in your sins, but now you're alive in Christ. We are given a new life, a new self, a new heart that beats in step with the Spirit. Colossians 3 says, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self and its practices and you've put on the new self. You're being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of the creator. Galatians 3, for those who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, since you are all one in Christ Jesus. Guys, don't live in the dark like you've forgotten what happened. Jesus saved you. Jesus saved you, and you have a new life, a new self, and you are created in his image. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, it is the light that comes into the midst of darkness and hopelessness and unutterable despair. So what is, what is life in the light then? What is life in the light? How do we know, how do we live this new identity and how do we live it together, right? As individual disciples and as the church. And I think that's what the framework for this passage that we're learning here today is. Verse 21 through, 20, uh, through 24, I think, give us um, those answers. So verse 21 says, Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. The church needs each other to be renewed in the spirit and to live like Christ. Now, real quick, what, he, what he's saying there is when we say being renewed in the spirit of your mind, right? Being renewed in the spirit of your mind. In the spirit means the whole self, being renewed in the entirety. It's not just being, understanding better your mind or something like that, right? That was kind of lame, but you get me. You get what I'm saying, right? It's the whole self, right? And verse 15 actually is a parallel verse with verse 24. And in many ways, they really complement and answer each other and how Christian lives are to be lived out in this new life in Christ, this becomes, and it does really become more fleshed out later on in the, the rest of the letter, but let's read verse 15 and 24. Verse 15 says, But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. Verse 24 says, And to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. Friends, to put on the new self, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind is to allow the gospel to grow in you so that you may recognize areas where the old self is corrupting, right? To put on the new self is to be able to recognize where the old self is corrupting. There's a good example in the story of um, C.S. Lewis he tells the story of walking into a tool shed. And he walks in, and as soon as he opens the door and he steps in, he can't see anything around him, right? The, the tool shed is, is encompassed by darkness, except for one small beam of light that came from the top of the roof and beamed down all the way to the floor. And as he walked in, he said, I couldn't see anything around me but the beam of light. And because he's C.S. Lewis, he thinks super deeply about this and creates a good illustration, right? And he, he looks at this beam of light and he says, now, when I'm looking at the light, it's, it's, a, it's an experience because I, can, I can't see anything around me, but I can see the, the shape that the beam has caused. I can see maybe the little spot on the floor. And I can even look, and if I looked really closely, I could see the dust particles that were inside of this light. But it's one it's a whole nother experience when I step into it and I look along the light. Because when I look along the light, I can see the trees. I can see the spring. 
springtime flowers blossoming. And more than that, more than just seeing this beauty, I can look and now I can actually see with greater clarity the room in the tool shed. The tool shed has become illuminated and I can see now what I was stepping into. Friends, there's a whole different experience when you're looking at the light as opposed to when you're looking in the light or when you're looking along the light. Looking along the light is to be putting on that new self, is to be living in light of the gospel, to be stepping and living along with what Jesus has called you to do. And only by putting on the new self, being renewed in the spirit of your minds, are you able to see with greater clarity the deception and the lure of sin that the old self is wanting you to pursue. The Bible stresses that we cannot see the darkness clearly. It also stresses that we can't see the darkness clearly on our own. We need friends. We need the church. The church has got to come together and lift one another up in the new self, bringing us as we all walk together as the body of Christ and help one another see the old corruption of the old self. The gospel is what confronts corruption. But later he tells us what this looks like in, in very rather opposites, right? Disciples living as their new selves, it replaces falsehood with love. Stealing for sharing. Bitterness, anger, wrath turns to kindness tenderness, love, sinfulness to righteousness, deception to purity of the truth. This is a wonderful image of grace and what God is doing in the lives of his people. As each individual comes together to try to mature and grow spiritually in Christ, he tells us the body comes together to help us do that. It's the church. And so what I want to do here is I want to give us some takeaways for what we can learn from this. And where I'm going to be looking next is to 1 John chapter 2. If you'd like to turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 14. I believe this is a really good model for how members growing in spiritual maturity, they can encourage one another in living this new identity in Christ and putting on their new self. Right, so verse 12, 1 John chapter 2, verse 12, he says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, I want you to, to know that the, the names and the titles that John is giving to the people, it's very, it's general here. And so what we're going to be doing is we're going to be using kind of some Ephesian language to help us unpack what, uh, what John is also referring to here. And so when he says, I'm writing to you little children, what he means is, I'm writing to you new disciples. I'm writing to you newly converted people, right? New people who have just come, in the, come into the church. The first and foremost thing that you should have and you should be aware of is that Christ has saved you. The first thing that he wants to tell you is that your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, right? 
And what that does for us is that helps us look at how are we spiritually maturing the new believers, the new disciples within our church. We need, we have the responsibility to grow our new disciples into spiritual maturity, being able to recognize, letting them being able to recognize sin and to teach them the gospel. We need to start with Jesus and we need to end with Jesus. Presenting the gospel to newly converted believers, it's got to be a priority. Most of the time, that newly converted disciple, that new disciple is not yet aware of the danger of what it would be like to go back to the old self. And so it is the church's responsibility to make that claim, to take it seriously, that to be a new person, a new identity within Christ, you've got to be able to recognize the darkness and you've got to live in the light. And I think that's amazing. I think that that's amazing, that the church gets to, a part to play in a new believer's life. Have you guys, I mean, even thinking about just, I'm up in the kids' rooms a lot, right? Sometimes when you get to, when you get to teach kids, sometimes kids are hearing the gospel or hearing gospel language for the very first time. There's something powerful about being able to speak a new uh, speak truth into someone who is hearing it for the first time, right? And is processing it. It's amazing. And we shouldn't take it lightly, right? If we don't shepherd like Christ shepherds us, then this is what's going to happen. They're going to learn it from somewhere else. They will give their attention to another. So we must go back to the gospel, friends. We must go back to the gospel over and over and remind them how they have learned Christ, how they came to know him. And what I love here too is it's not just for the, the, our focus just shouldn't be on the spiritual maturity of new believers. It absolutely should, but that's not everyone in the church. There's also seasoned disciples. Seasoned disciples have been taught in Christ. Verse 14, I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. Again, thinking of that seasoned disciple. A seasoned disciple, they are going to be the ones who, are, who have been taught in Christ, and they are going to lead the way in teaching the younger generations and the younger disciples and those growing disciples in how to take off that old self and put on that new self. But this can sometimes be a bit difficult in the church. I remember a hard season in my life when I was, uh, Amy and I, we had just had our third baby. We had just had Tavia. And I remember this was probably, uh, so far from what I can remember, this is my, my biggest spiritual low. This was, I was in a huge spiritual depression. I was... Um, I was in, serving in ministry. I was struggling with understanding why I didn't feel like God was great, but I was telling people like that God is great. I was struggling with that. I was having, um, I was stressed out. I was overwhelmed. But it seemed to me like I kept looking in the church and I kept looking to try to find someone that could come alongside me, 
some older person, some seasoned disciple that could come in and say, I have been through that too. I remember what that is like, and God has his grip on you. God is with you. God is walking with you. Don't think that he's abandoned you because he hasn't. And friends, I can tell you that it was harder than it should have been to find that person. Sometimes our church, we can often assume that because you walk through the doors, because you sit down, because you get coffee, that you're okay. But we're not. We are not okay, and we need each other to recognize. We need to walk with one another, and we need those seasoned disciples to walk with the younger and to bring them back to renewing the spirit of their minds and putting on their new selves So seasoned believers, are you sharing your past victories with the younger? Are you actively encouraging the younger disciples, those growing in their faith in the body, that they have the strength to fight sin? Or are they doing it alone? Don't assume that new and growing disciples don't need your support. Don't be satisfied with them looking for help outside the church. The body needs the people who have fought the battles to tell the ones who are in them that God reigns, that Jesus reigns, and that you being in Jesus, you will have victory. You will overcome. And we need these seasoned disciples to tell them, and I'm going to walk with you the whole way. Celebrate the battles won and celebrate the sins defeated. And then this third group is the growing disciples in verse 14. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Again, generalizing to this younger, maturing people in the faith, the big thing here is you have heard Christ You have responded to him. And I love the way that John's speaking about these growing disciples. Um, And mainly if we think about it, we can think about the younger, the younger adults, younger generation. And know, he wants you to know that you've heard Christ. You have heard him put on the new self. Why? Because you're strong. Church, what if we changed the script to the cultural's narrative of in order to be strong, you have to do this, you have to accomplish that, you've got to do these things, you've got to go to this school, you've got to do this and that in order to be strong. What if we just simply followed the Bible's teaching that said you are strong? You are strong because you are in Christ. What kind of impact would that make? You have heard him. The word of God abides in you because you've overcome the evil one. How? Because you've heard Jesus. You've learned him. You have heard him. And now you're walking with him. Don't believe that lie that culture says you have to be, you have to do, you have to produce, you have to this yada, yada, yada. No, you are strong. You are strong because you're in Christ. In the church, it's our responsibility to champion this strength 
and to build and lift one another up so that we can all, we can all pursue wholeheartedly what God has called us to do. Church, we are actively showing the grace of God to the world around us. Our unity, our love, and our dependence on one another is what makes God's grace visible to the world. So let's walk together. Let's walk together renewing our minds as God makes us more like him and brings us into his grace and makes us holy. Let's pray.